A number of years ago, there was a book that was released by Francis Chan called Crazy Love. And uh, it was one of those books that I picked it up, and when I picked it up, I literally could not put it down. And I know that is not unusual for some people. Some people, they can pick up, you know, the dictionary, and they can read it for three hours and be happy. That is not me. Like, I am a very, um, I don't know, struggle for focus, ADD type of a person. Like, it has to be something that really grabs my attention to be able to lock me in for an entire book. Um, just to show you the level of this, I'm the type of guy that will pay $12 to go to the theater to take a nap. I mean, I kid you not, like the last several Star Wars movies, there's epic battles, there's fighting going on, and Bria looks down the row and I'm out like this. It takes a lot to keep my attention. And this book was one of those books that absolutely grabbed my attention. And then I started talking to people who read the book. I'm like, what did you think about it? And the things that they talked about that meant something to them, um, I don't even remember those parts in the book. I don't know if you've ever had those moments where like there's pieces that stand out for you that do not stand out for everybody else. But the piece that really grabbed my attention as I was going through is this idea of living in the moment with God and engaging in things that actually matter. He, he emphasized the fact that nobody can go back and change the past. We all get that. Uh, none of us are guaranteed the future. We get that. All we have is what's happening right now. And he began to focus the person in on, are you doing what God's calling you to do now? Are, are you doing things that matter for eternity now? There was this one statement, it's probably one of my favorite quotes of any book, and that's saying a lot. Here's this one statement that I have written down and I have processed multiple times. He said, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be a failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. When I read that for the first time, it was like everything inside of me wanted to scream out and say, yes, that's, that's a piece. For some reason, I couldn't get my mind around it, but it's a piece that has been sitting in my heart for years. That is, you can do good things, you can do nice things, you can do morally upright things, and it still doesn't mean that you've done anything that's going to last for eternity. So let's personalize this, this idea. As a parent, are you succeeding in things that actually matter? Not are you busy, not are you keeping everybody alive in your house. We hope that's going to happen. But if you were to ask the question, are the things that you're doing those things that are going to last for eternity? As an individual believer, as a church family, are we succeeding in things that really matter? Not are we busy, not are we active, not are we engaged. Like there's always activity that is around us, but within that activity, within all of that effort, with that time, with those resources, are we involved in things that are close to the heart of God, things that last for eternity? Maybe there's another question that we should ask here. Are you engaged at all? Are you even in the game? Because there's two extremes on this. Some people are fully engaged to the point of exhaustion, and other people are unengaged to the point of wasting potential. There's two opposite sides. Some people are so convinced of what they can do for God that it teeters on arrogance. 
And other people are so unsure that God gave them any gifting that they don't try anything for God. There, there has to be this balance between the two pieces. The text that we're in tonight helps us understand that balance. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles this evening, Ephesians chapter number two. We're going to be in verses 11 through 13. I'm speaking on engaging now, engaging now. Uh, now, I want to kind of let you all know from the very beginning, this is a message that relies heavily on context and flow of the book. Context and flow of the book. I'm going to go back and I'm going to recapture some of that context and we're going to walk in through the flow and it's out of the context and the flow of the book that there is understanding and there is going to be application. If you try from the very beginning to look at that title, engage you now, and then you're listening as I start building out the context, you're going to be thinking the whole time, I got no idea where he's going. I don't understand where he's going. This doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I know it's going to feel exactly like that. But if you just take it section by section, by the grace of God, we're going to get to the end of verse number 13. And Lord willing, the word of God is going to open up in a way that you've never seen it opened up before. This is one of those texts that to me is so exciting because from the surface, it looks like the, the text that you just kind of glance over a little bit and then you move on to the next section. But if you miss this section, you're missing so much of what he's setting up for the entire second half of this book. So we're going to have a word of prayer. I am not going to read the text in advance. We're going to read the sections. I'm going to explain and we'll work our way through from there. So Let's have a word of prayer. Let's get into this. Heavenly Father, we are completely dependent upon your spirit tonight to not only help set the context and the flow, but Lord, to bring alive the truths that you want each of us to walk away with. So Lord, we need you to guide us into truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start with context again. I say all the time, context is crucial for our understanding the word of God. And a lot of this, and even a little bit more, was something we shared when we first started this book, but that's been about a year ago, so it's good for a quick refresher. So here's the fast context. The letter to the Ephesians is written to believers in Ephesus. It's important you understand, this isn't just written to everybody who lived in Ephesus, this is written to believers who are in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a large commercial city, about 350,000 residents. It was a major communication link between Rome as well as the East. Merchants flocked to this city. People from around the world moved to this city in order to call it home. This was the city that gained the title as being the filth capital of the Roman Empire. And a part of that was because of the temple for Diana that was in the center of the city. And it was a temple that hired temple prostitutes. Just let that one sink in for just a moment. These ladies would offer their services as a consummation for the worship of that day. Just let that sink in. If you're talking about how far away from what we would consider to be godly and righteous and holy, like this is a city that stood for everything against what holiness stands for. Now, along with sexual indulgences of the temple, people also could indulge their lust for blood in this city. Ephesus had the largest Greek open-air theater. The stadium was used for chariot races and fights and gory battles with wild animals. So in Ephesus, blood and brutality and broken bodies, that was just a part of the scene in Ephesus. 
And on Paul's second missionary journey, he preached the gospel in this city and God saw fit to start a church. And in this, this city, this church is growing, believers are growing. And this is a letter that's written maybe seven to nine years after the founding of that church. But it's important that we understand the context the church was in, because that's the context, this filth capital of the Roman Empire. And yet when the Apostle Paul addresses believers in the church of Ephesus, he refers to them as saints, as faithful, and as those who are in Christ. Listen closely. Their identity was not defined by their past nor their context. That's going to be a huge piece coming up in just a few moments. Their identity not defined by their past or their context. Now, there's three, three major themes that are emphasized throughout this letter. The first, all Christians are united together in the body of Christ. Uh, there are not five churches. There are not 50 churches. There are not 50 million churches. There is one church that is in a lot of different locations. The second major theme, all Christians have everything they need in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have everything we need, and here's another huge piece that's going to be important in a few moments. This is not just for some believers, not just for the elite believers, not just the pastors or the elders or the bishops. This is for all believers. All believers have everything we need in Christ. In this section, chapters one through three, it shares the contents of our spiritual bank account. It, it lets us know what do we have in Christ. That is, we have adoption, acceptance, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, inheritance, the seal of the Holy Spirit, life, grace, citizenship. In short, we have every blessing, every spiritual blessing that we need. When you get into chapters four through six, it serves like an orthopedic clinic. It helps believers to walk out the truths that have been placed in. They teach Christians how to express these truths, how to live these truths. Everything that we're still working through in chapter two is building the case for what we have in Christ, but we're about to take a transition piece. He's, he's setting things up, getting people prepared for what's gonna take place in chapter four. The third major theme is all Christians are called to live out these spiritual truths for the glory of the Father, the building up of the body, and the advancement of God's kingdom. Again, I emphasize all Christians. God designed the Christian life to be lived in an interconnected way. That is, each individual has a part to play, and every part is necessary for the health of the body. So now let's focus for a moment on the flow of what's happening specifically in chapter two. Chapter two is about reflection in unity. Okay, you might wanna write that off to the side somewhere. Reflection in unity. The story of redemption that we've covered so far, five previous weeks in this chapter two, the story of redemption is one having us look back and to reflect upon what Christ has already done for us. He spends 10 verses helping us look back on first where we were before Christ. 
And here's a quick synopsis. We were dead in trespasses. We walked according to the course of this world. We lived in rebellion. We indulged the flesh, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's what we found at the first part of chapter 2. What did God do through Christ? He showed us mercy. He loved us. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and seated us with him, chapter 2, verse 6, and he showed grace and kindness toward us. The third question there is what is our future in Christ supposed to look like? We found last week that we were recreated for good works and we're given a good life that God prearranged and made ready for us to live. Put all that together. Here's what it just told us. This is where God found us. This is what God did for us. And this is where God is leading us. Okay, all of this is our spiritual bank account. All of it is what Christ has done. And it's preparing us to begin to walk out the truths that he has placed in. Now, if you would, look at what we find in verse number 11. Verse 11, it's still keeping this theme of remember or reflection. And notice the first couple of words. It starts in verse number 11 and it says this, therefore, remember. Okay, first, therefore, it's connecting you back to what was just said. In light of what I just said, here's a little bit more. Remember, reflect, think back towards. Then it goes on to say that formerly, once again, it's drawing your attention back, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Gentiles are simply non-Jews. One of the great divisions of the first century church was between Jewish and Gentile believers. This verse uses two words, circumcision and uncircumcision. And rest assured, those two words mean exactly what you think they mean. So since the days of Abraham, circumcision for Jewish men served as a covenantal sign of the unique relationship that existed between God as well as the Jewish people. They were chosen by God for special blessings and for a special task. And part of that task was to be the light to the nations. God entered covenants with the nation of Israel. He gave them his law and he separated them unto himself. The Jews gloried in this covenantal relationship. And some, not all, but some would negatively refer to Gentiles as the uncircumcised. It was, it was a way to point out, we have something you don't have. We have a covenantal relationship with the God of this universe. The division continued to grow within the early church. Many Jews insisted that Gentile converts to Christianity needed to be circumcised to enter covenant relationship with the God of Israel. As you might imagine, Gentile believers, they resented this idea. So both Luke as well as the Apostle Paul, they dedicate a lot of their time in their letters to addressing that exact point. The consensus of the New Testament is that under the new covenant, both physical circumcision and uncircumcision are without spiritual significance. It is true that circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that was made with the nation of Israel. But we've got to get this. The church is not Israel. That's called replacement theology. 
the seal of those who are part of the true church is not circumcision anymore. It is the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul said that believers have been marked by the Holy Spirit and have received a circumcision of the heart, okay? All of this is important. I, I guarantee you, all of it is absolutely important for where this is going. Before Calvary and Pentecost, the way that a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, could join in to the spiritual blessings and the covenantal benefits of Israel was to become a Jewish proselyte. After Calvary and Pentecost, the only way a Gentile could enter covenant relationship with the God of Israel was to place faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's also true of Jews. Now, in verse 11, Paul wants the people to reflect upon where they've been, what it is that happened in the past, and at the same time, reflect upon this major source of disunity. Because when we get into chapter 4, he's going to move into the unity of the Spirit. There is one body, there is one Spirit, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. And before we get into the unity side, he's like, we got to deal with this thing that's happening right now within the church. Now let's keep reading in verse number 12. As we get into this, just know, Paul did in verses 1 through 10, he, he did something where he shows how bleak life was prior to Christ. Now, starting in verse number 12, he begins to identify the same pieces, but he narrows the focus to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, okay? And things go from bad to worse. Here's what it says. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Now, he uses Christ in a generic sense to refer to Messiah. That, that term means the anointed one, Messiah. So here's what Paul is saying. While the Jews were looking towards Messiah coming, the Gentiles did not even have an expectation of Messiah. He's saying they were separated from the very concept of Messiah itself. Verse number 12 continues by saying, Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, a commonwealth that speaks of the nation, it speaks of its people. Uh, being Jewish is about more than religious affiliation, it's about heritage, it's about being a part of the nation of Israel. It's important for us to understand that because God's covenants were directly connected to God's people as a nation, as a commonwealth. You had to become a part of the people in order to experience the covenant blessings. This is going to be important. This connection's coming. You, you got to see this. A great example of this goes back to the story of Ruth and Naomi. A beautiful story. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite who married the son of a Jewish woman who happened to have settled in the land of Moab. Uh, she met her husband in Moab, and we find that where uh, Naomi and her sons had moved there because of different needs, she gets there, she gets married, but along the way, the sons die. But in this process of being in the family, she begins to want to worship the God of Israel. So now at one particular point, Naomi is going back to Israel, and here's what takes place. She is trying to convince her daughter-in-law, you need to stay here. But this is what she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. 
Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. That passage has been read in so many weddings until it's crazy. And it sounds like beautiful sentiment, but it's more than just beautiful sentiment. It marks a major piece of salvific history. Ruth wanted to worship the God of Israel, but she could not fully say, your God will be my God until she first was able to say, your people will be my people. In other words, this, this change needed to happen on an identity level, on a national sense, before she could experience that on a spiritual sense. The reason is exactly what's being pointed out here. Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were outside of the nation, outside of those blessings and promises. Now let's continue reading in verse 12. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. As previously stated, most of these promises through the Old Testament were on the basis of covenant. And that covenant was made with the nation of Israel. Just some of those bigger covenants throughout your Old Testament would be the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant. According to scripture, Gentiles are excluded from the covenants of promise because the covenants were made with the Jewish people. As a result, here's what he says. Gentiles were having no hope and without God in the world. Now, the, the word without, it does not mean that they refused to believe in God. It doesn't mean that God had forsaken them. It, it, it doesn't mean that they could not in the future have a knowledge of God. What it simply meant is that a Gentile needed to become a Jewish proselyte to enter the commonwealth that held the covenants, that contained the promises, that offered the hope, that provided relationship through the God of Israel. So about the time everybody's like, whoa, that's too intense. Like there's too many steps, there's too many pieces, it's too overwhelming for us to step into that. About that time, he's saying, reflect upon where it was that he found you. Reflect upon where it is that he grabbed you from. Reflect upon that because now when we get into this section, it is the second great contraction of chapter two. He says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is a cultural play on words that's happening here. The rabbis spoke of the Gentiles as being so far away from the covenant promises that they had to be brought near for that to take place. They had to be brought near by becoming a Jewish proselyte. Based on the story of redemption that we have just covered over five weeks, we understand that entering a covenant relationship with God does not mean you have to go back and become a Jewish proselyte. It means that you have to place faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's how we are brought near through the blood of Christ. Also, notice the passive way in which our involvement is mentioned in verse number 13 brought near those who were far off were brought near we didn't close the gap ourselves we didn't figure god out ourselves we didn't obey enough 
that we were able to come close ourselves. We were brought near. We are picked up by nail-scarred hands. We are carried on a back that was beaten for us at Calvary. We are brought near by the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Brought near. Now that the context and the flow are in place, notice this moment. For 12 verses, Paul has outlined this deep contrast between where we were then and where we are now. So if you were to start at the top of chapter two, working your way down, here's the sequence that you would find. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're saved. We were excluded, but now we're included. We were strangers, but now we're family. We were without hope, but now we have hope. We were without God, but now God has us. We were once far off, but now we've been brought near. In verse number four, the bad news ends with but God. In verse 13, our old excuses end with but now. You didn't get that. You didn't get that. No. Okay. After he's taken all of this time to say, this is what I've done. This is where I found you. This is what I've provided. You have this. You have everything that you need in the heavenly places in Christ. You've been brought near. You're now a part of the family. You once were dead. Now you're alive. You're in covenant relationship. All of that, the question now becomes, what do you do now at this point moving forward? This but now is crucial for every believer. Many Christians become apprehensive about what God wants to do in and through their life because they still got a big list of excuses as to why God cannot use them now. The question is not what happened back then. The question is, who are you now? He has taken a lot of time to build us up to this point and say, but now here's what we have. Scripture doesn't sugarcoat where God found us, but it also doesn't downplay what God did for us. According to the first two chapters, every Christian, again, this goes back to context, not just some, not just a few, every Christian is adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, wise through Christ, given an inheritance, sealed with the Holy Spirit, transferred from death unto life, are recipients of mercy, move from outside to inside, from hopeless to hopeful, from far to near. In short, we have everything we need in Christ as a Christian You are what God says you are. You have what God says you have. You can be who God created you to be. Don't let anyone or any circumstance diminish that to the point that you say, I can't do it because of this. That's not what you find if you read the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. God is in the process of developing us, his followers, into trophies of grace and to individuals who our character reflects that of Christ. And he's positioned us in different areas to be able to make an impact. And he wants to live in and through you. Let him do it. I dare you. I dare you 
to prayerfully say, God, my yes is on the table and let him fill out the questions from there. I dare you to do that. You will find that God will take a willing person who you might look at and say, they don't have a lot of talent. They don't have a lot of gifting. And God can take a willing person and use them in incredible and extraordinary ways. And sometimes the most talented people who are believers are sitting on the sidelines because they keep trying to dictate the terms of their service. Just say, God, I'm here. (laughs) The past is the past. I can't change it. This is where I am right now. So for me, when I read through the book, Crazy Love, I said it, it rocked my world. But I'm going to tell you, there were two pieces that stood out to me that challenged me in a huge way. One was on the side of giving, and the other was on the side of serving. Let me set it up for both parts. I was bothered at the time that it seemed like mine and Bria's giving had kind of gone into autopilot mode. And that is, we've, we've always operated from the perspective 10% is a great starting place. And we're going to give above and beyond. And, and we've been doing that. But, but here's what happens. Especially if things are just automatically pulled out of your account. If, if you're just kind of sending things to just different ministries. All of a sudden, the moment of worship when it comes to giving and what it looks like to walk in faith is almost removed from the equation. It's like you, you prepare, you work it into the budget up front, and it's almost like, all right, it's set, it's done. And as I was reading this book, Crazy Love, the thing that he mentioned is stories of people who adjusted their lifestyle to free up more resources to be ready in the moment for what God was calling them to give towards. And it was incredible because there was nothing in these stories that was like legalistic and demanding and saying, if you don't put aside this amount of money, you don't love Jesus. It it wasn't that. It was just stories of people who were saying, I am so excited about what God is doing around the world that I, I want to adjust how I'm living because I want to get in on that at a deeper level. I want to give to things. I want to be in a place where when God lays out a need, there's resources I've stuck off to the side that I'm like, God, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. That, that to me was one of those pieces that began to adjust the way we were giving. Another piece was on the side of serving. You all know at this point, I like to plan stuff. I like things to be strategically thought out. I'm over here thinking, all right, what's the best way to use my gifts to accomplish the most in this situation for the most number of people? Like in my mind, I just, I want everything to be strategically planned out. Did you all know that there is a balance between strategic and spontaneous? And here's the reason God began to wreck my world on this. Because I'm sitting off to the side saying, God, is it strategic? Is it the right one? Is this the the, the place I need to be involved? And it's like opportunity after opportunity for service just keeps coming on by. 50 of them keep coming by as I'm waiting for that one big one. (laughs) And here's what he said. It was like, just join me in those small pieces. Just keep stepping. There's spontaneous moments of worship that we get to engage in what God is doing now. Everybody is going to have different places where they're, they're wrestling with God. Like, what does it look like for me to fully engage God at this moment? 
We've all got excuses. We've all got ideas as to why it is we can do certain things and not do other things. All I can say is the best stories that are out there are the stories that snuck up on the child of God. (laughs) They didn't see it coming. God did something incredible that they could not explain, and the rest of the world just has our jaw on the ground saying, I don't know how it happened. But I think there's supposed to be more of those stories happening in the body of Christ. Look for ways that God is saying, engage now. Identify those areas in your life where you keep using excuses as to what happened back in the past as to why God cannot use you in the future. Identify those those struggles where maybe it's issues that you're saying, God, I just, I don't know how to do that. I don't feel like I'm as gifted in these areas. I, I don't even know where to begin. Submit those pieces to God in prayer. Ask the Spirit of God to lead you. You're going to find that there's going to be pieces that are going to absolutely fit your gifting. And it needs to be that way. God gave you those gifts. He wants to use those gifts for the edification of the body and for the glory of God. We need to do those things. But sometimes some of those great moments of faith is when it's just in the moment and somebody's saying, we need to get five people together to go set up tables in another room. We need to get 10 people together to go prayer walk in a community. We're we're going to be training people in evangelism to be able to share their faith in a way that matters. And the person is like, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Like, that's not me. Oh, just step out and let God do something there. (laughs) Let God train you in the moment. You'll be amazed as to how many God moments you get a chance to get in on when you're ready to engage now. This section is saying, this is where he found you. This is what he did for you. This is the future he's calling you to. It is a future of good works that he prepared ahead of time. A good life that he made ready for us to live. This next week, start praying and saying, God, where are the areas that you're wanting me to step out in right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for the opportunity that you give us to be able to not only gather and study, but to also be able to reflect upon, to process the truths of Scripture together. God, I pray that whatever excuses we might have in our minds as to why we're not the right fit in this moment, Lord, if it is of the enemy, if it is personal doubt, if it's areas that are trying to keep us from something you're calling us towards, God, may it be completely removed. Lord, may you allow us to enjoy the small moments, the moments of faithfulness, celebrate those pieces along the way, and God will be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.